This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. With me today is Dr. Thomas Bogardis. He is the Associate Professor at Pepperdine University. Dr. Bogardis received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas at Austin. He works broadly in philosophy of mind and epistemology. Thomas, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jimmy. It's nice to be here. All right, so I wanted to get started uh, with your background. I was looking at your academic resume, and something struck me as interesting, which is that you got your undergraduate degree in biology. So I'm curious what got you started in biology, and then what made you switch from biology to philosophy? Yeah, um, well, I think it's not too unusual for people to wander into philosophy from other disciplines. Uh, I mean, the way I understand philosophy, it's sort of like the mother discipline at the heart of the university. But unfortunately, not many people know that. And it takes a bit of a journey for some people to discover that. Um, and that's what happened in my own case. So um, I think I started out in biology because um, my mother uh, was a research scientist. She's a she was a molecular biologist. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean to speak of her in the past tense as though she's dead. She's still with us. But <laughs> when I was young, she was working in laboratories as a research scientist. Um, and so I was sort of brought up around that and I really liked that. And I got a lot of encouragement um, from my mother. And then also her father uh, was in medicine. Um, he was a psychiatrist. And so I got a pretty clear vision of what a future in that area might look like, and it seemed appealing. So um, I started working in laboratories at UC Irvine when I was in high school. Then I continued that at UC San Diego um, doing molecular biology. So I was kind of deciding as an undergraduate between going to medical school and maybe being a surgeon or continuing um, research work in laboratories and going to get a PhD, being a research scientist. Um, but while I was an undergraduate, I sort of discovered that um, the questions I was interested in weren't really um, questions that biologists were very excited about asking. They weren't the typical sort of biological questions. I was interested in some biological questions like um, the origin of life. And actually what got me into philosophy was an interest in um, cognitive science and philosophy of mind. So I was really interested in how the mind worked and what consciousness was. Um, I also had sort of standard interests about Darwinism and the relationship between Darwinism and atheism and theism, whether like Darwinism ruled out theism and so on. I also remember I took an evolutionary psychology class and I was really fascinated by the relationship between what we were apparently learning from evolutionary psychology and moral realism. So those were the sorts of questions that um, really excited me. Those were the ones that I found myself reading about in my free time. And it wasn't until pretty late in my undergraduate career that I learned that these were really philosophical questions. This was where biology was sort of um, intersecting with philosophy. And so I decided like, man, I really wanna pursue these questions a little bit. Um, before I go to medical school or before I go get a PhD in biology, I'd like to go maybe get a master's degree in philosophy. And then I'll, you know, do the responsible thing and go to medical school. And so I went and got a master's degree and thought, um, you know, I'll just get this philosophy thing out of my system. But then I ended up getting a PhD in philosophy. And by then it was it was too late. I was too far in. <laughs> I ended up um, where I am today, still in philosophy. You know, it's funny that you uh, you seem to actually have a very similar story to my own. So I grew up in a, a very religious household. Um I grew up among biblical literalists, so this is the sort of thing where, like, you think the world is, like, literally 6,000 years old, and, you know, like, the Adam and Eve story is, is quite literal. Um, I used to jokingly tell my friends that anything fun was a sin, because that's sort of my view. <laughs> um, and I remember in late in high school, I think it was, like, my senior year, I discovered Richard Dawkins. I remember reading The Blind Watchmaker, like, under my covers, like, hoping not to be detected by my parents. <laughs> 
and just mesmerized by this stuff and thinking that sort of biology or evolutionary biology in particular um, answered a lot of these questions that I had about origins and, you know, our, our place in the universe. And my, I think it was my second semester in college, I took an introduction to philosophy course and ran into a lot of, um, a lot of very difficult questions I couldn't ask and realized that biology just doesn't really cut it, right? It doesn't, you know, like the meaning of life or sort of the the standing of moral, for moral claims. Like this sort of stuff is not, it's not really explained by biology. But I, it's sort of funny that, that our, our stories are similar in that respect. Although I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy, so it wasn't nearly as useful as, as yours. Yeah, um, I guess, I, yeah, we, it sounds like we had similar experiences. I mean, I remember working in labs with really intelligent people, you know, um, PhDs in biology, and I would ask them questions like, what do you think about the origin of life and like the origin of the universe? And uh, what do you think about the relationship between evolution and um, religious belief? And I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like judge these people too harshly or speak ill of them. But the impression I got from a lot of biologists was it's sort of embarrassing to like think about these questions. Like this is not our job. Uh, I mean, it's not quite like I was asking them how they feel about astrology, but it was close. They were like, um, you know, that's not what we're doing here. Um, we shouldn't be talking about this publicly or something like that. Like they were really cautious about talking about these questions. Yeah, like I said, they felt a little bit embarrassed by it. So, yeah, I guess when I started meeting people who were more philosophically inclined, I was so relieved that people felt free to talk about these issues and um, they actually like gave arguments on either side. And I think that's what drew me over to philosophy. Just the fact that those were the people who were willing to talk about what I thought were the most interesting questions. So I wanted to discuss a little bit about your time in graduate school only because I, I having gone through graduate school myself, it's kind of rigorous. It can be very stressful and isolating, you know, going, going through something like a doctoral program is uh, it's a big nut to crack, so to speak. Uh, so I'm curious um, about the if you had any like techniques, tips, routines, things that you would do to deal with you know stress, um, completing your term papers, um, and finishing your degree. Well, um, unfortunately, I think that much of my success in grad school, insofar as I was successful, was uh, due to the cultivation of certain vices. Unfortunately. Um, like to an unfortunate degree, it was the fear of failure and my own pride and envy of other people's success and a desire to succeed, to like spite other people's doubts, um, to prove other people wrong. I had a sort of desperation to be well thought of, et cetera. Um, and unfortunately those things <laughs> kind of, um, account for, um, a great deal of my ability to like persevere and stick with it and to finish the program. Um, so I, I can't really recommend those, but yeah, I was, I was sort of in a um, particularly unfortunate situation because I was, I was actually initially rejected from the university of Texas. I got a letter in the mail saying, you know, thanks for your application, but rejection. Um, and then like, I got a call very late in the game saying, good news, you're, you're admitted off the wait list. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was never, I was never informed I was on the wait list. And so, I mean, graduate school is already sort of apt to make people feel like imposters. That, that's already quite common to feel like an imposter when you go to graduate school. But because I sort of knew that like I was rejected before I got into this program, I think like I was really primed to experience a very, very strong case of imposter syndrome. Um, it was easy to like look around the room and realize like probably everybody else here belongs here. They were like actually wanted here, whereas I was kind of like an afterthought. Um, and so that was kind of a, that was a crushing weight to carry around, but um, it did motivate me to do better and to improve um, and to prove that I belonged there and Perhaps I was like wrongly overlooked in the admissions process. The sort of vices that um, motivated me, and I am not recommending those. I don't. Those those weren't psychologically healthy. Um, but I think it wasn't all bad. Um, I think that uh, to a large degree, my success in graduate school was due to um, my love for my family. I think that getting married and having a child 
was really important to my success in graduate school. I felt that I had a I had a deep sense of duty that I needed to provide for them. So I think that was a positive motivation in graduate school. And I think having a family, um, getting married and having, um, I, I just had one child, but I knew people who had multiple children, that really forces you to be a better manager of your time. Like you simply cannot um, survive graduate school with um, a family if you don't manage your time in a in a constructive way. Our measure of my success was due to um, my love of the church and my view of philosophy as a useful service to the church. So I thought that what I was doing was kind of important. I viewed it as like a vocation or a calling or a, I was serving a much larger purpose than myself or at least trying my best to do that. And then I also think, this is the last thing I'll say in this regard, um, I think it was also very useful that I never really viewed myself as a philosopher. That wasn't really a deep part of my identity, and it, it still isn't really. Um, in graduate school, the deepest parts of my identity had to do with being a Christian and a husband and a father and a friend. So in that respect, it was really good to have a loving, supportive and healthy family life at home and at my church during graduate school. I always sort of thought of myself as just like a long term tourist in philosophy on an on an extended vacation in philosophy. I was really just a visitor from from biology. Um, and that made it easier to deal with all the slings and arrows of graduate school. Because uh, in graduate school, like one tries very hard to be excellent at philosophy, but everybody else is trying really hard to smash your best efforts. <laughs> and they usually succeed, <laughs> which is the problem. And so if being a good philosopher is really important to your self-esteem, um, then, geez, graduate school can be totally devastating. Uh, so I think it was just very fortunate and very lucky that um, I didn't really take those criticisms too seriously because being a good philosopher was never very near to my heart. It was always just something I viewed as a hobby that was really cool and I would like to be good at it. But if I'm not good at it, I'll just go back to biology, um, go back to where I belong, you know. And then it just sort of turned out that this hobby became my livelihood. So I'm curious, what was it like for you on the job market? Yeah. So, um, I mean, again, in many ways, I did not deal with the stress of the job market very well. I definitely experienced despair and anxiety and a very great deal of stress. I mean, so much stress, it changed the color of my hair. I used to have like solid colored hair. Now it's all, it's mostly white. And I'm, there was a really drastic change in the color of my hair during the, during my years on the job market. Um, it made it really difficult to sleep. Um, I was very tough to be around for a few years there. And as I said, I spent like a few years on the job market. I went on the job market prematurely in the fall of 2009, after only four years in graduate school. And that's because the economy was melting down. And I was thinking like, well, maybe I can find a life raft on this sinking ship before the job market totally collapses. Um, I only had two interviews that year, no on-campus visits. Um, so I went on the job market the next year as well. And that's when like things were just a total disaster on the job market. I think I ended up again having just a couple interviews and maybe one on-campus visit my second year on the job market. And I think that on-campus visit was to a program that um, I think I just heard recently that that program no longer exists. Like <laughs> That philosophy program was eliminated. So yeah, things have been tough in philosophy. Um, the third year on the job market, I finally got a temporary job, which was nice. And that was good because that was, that was my last year of funding in graduate school. So I had somewhere to go. Um, and then it wasn't until my fourth year that I finally got um, I got three tenure track job offers that year. Um, so, yeah, it took four years, which rougher than some of my friends had it, but certainly not as rough as other of my friends had it. Um, so that was a very dark time in my life. Um, as to like how I succeeded, I think the answer is the same as what I said with regard to graduate school. Some some vices managed to get me through, like fear of failure, pride, envy, a desire to prove people wrong, and so on. But also those same positive things that helped me get through graduate school, helped me get through the job market. 
um, an intense desire to provide for my family, um, and just a knowledge that like if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. And I think there is a lot of truth to the idea that like necessity is the mother of invention. And when you need to do something, you find a way of doing it. And that's not always like psychologically easy, but I think that's what happened in my own case. Like I, I did it because I had to do it. Like there was, there was nothing else to be done. <laughs> and so I worked really hard and managed to publish a few papers that I think were pretty good. And in the end, I managed to find a good landing spot. But yeah, unfortunately, like if you're if you're asking me for psychological advice on healthy coping strategies, unfortunately, I'm not a good person to ask about that. I, I guess the most I could say is um, I've heard exercise helps and <laughs> it helped in my own case. Um, but also, like, by no means am I opposed to um, the judicious use of psychiatric um, medication and pharmaceuticals. And so if any of your listeners are experiencing like a really dark sort of depression or anxiety, by all means, I would recommend seeking professional help. So your interests are, your research interests are really interesting. And I wanted to um, narrow them down a bit because you've got quite a few. So it's on your website that you focus on um, the mind-body problem. And I'm just curious for listeners who don't know, what is the mind-body problem? So yeah, in a nutshell, the mind-body problem is um, the problem of explaining the relationship between the mind and the body. Um, and I guess this is a problem or an interesting philosophical puzzle because we have some reasons to think that the mind and the body are distinct. And in fact, the mind is distinct even from the brain. So there are some powerful considerations in favor of thinking that the mind and the body are different. But also there's there are some powerful philosophical arguments for the conclusion that the mind and the body are the same or the mind just as the brain or something like that. We've got some reasons to think that humans are physical through and through. And so the puzzle is trying to sort of adjudicate these competing considerations, like who's right? You know, is the mind distinct from the body or are these really just the same thing seen from different angles, as it were? Um, so, yeah, that in a nutshell is the mind-body problem. Um, I guess I could say more about what these considerations are on either side. I actually wanted to ask you about mind-body dualism, because it seems like your some of your work at least defends... Uh, the dualistic view, um, and maybe say something about the main competitor to dualism. So there's dualism and then this other stuff. Yeah, so um, dualism, as the name suggests, is the view that when we're talking about the mind and body, there's there are two things. And there's different strengths of dualism, you might say. So um, let's start with the, the strongest version. So full-blown substance dualism says that um, when it comes to the mind and the body, there are two different things here, which philosophers call substances. And so um, listeners who are new to philosophy should be careful not to hear the word substance in like the sense you hear it in like chemistry class, where it means like stuff. In philosophy, it sort of means thing. Um, substances are things, and then properties are like ways that those things are. Um, so Substance dualism says that the mind is one thing and it has interesting features that we call mental features, like thoughts and desires and purposes, intentions, beliefs, and so on. These are all mental features, mental properties um, that are had by a mind. And that's one substance, the, the mental substance. That's one thing. But then substance dualism says, of course, in addition, we also have bodies, uh, but that is a distinct distinct substance that is a separate thing um, and it has sort of characteristic physical properties or characteristic physical features like you know height and weight um, density and it's it's made of a certain kind of matter and so on these are all the properties of your body and what substance dualism typically says is um, although there is a sort of two-way causal connection between these two substances so that like when I pinch my arm my mind feels pain, and when I intend to move my arm, whoop, there it goes, up in the air. Although there is that two-way causal connection between my mind and my body, 
Um, nevertheless, these are two different things. They're not identical. Um, they are distinct. I mean, although a lot of dualists will um, be reluctant to put it in just this way, I mean, it might help your listeners to think of your relationship, the relationship between you and your car. Um, when you're in your car and when you're driving, you stand in kind of a two-way causal connection to your car so that you get information from your car. Like when you go over bumps, you feel that. And also you can cause things to happen in your car by turning the steering wheel and so on. But nevertheless, you are different from your car. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's not super misleading to say that according to substance dualism, your relationship to your body is something like a driver in a car. So I think that's enough to understand the view. Um, I guess I'll just briefly mention, though, that some philosophers who say that they're dualists mean that they are what they call property dualists. So they are not substance dualists. They think that when it comes to the mind and the body, there's just one thing here. The mind just is the body, or maybe just a part of your body, like your brain. So your mind just is a physical thing, maybe your brain or maybe your whole body. But these property dualists say the characteristic features of your mind, like your beliefs and your thoughts and your sensations and your feelings, these are not physical properties. These are not just the same thing as like states of your brain or states of your body. Mental properties are something new that come into the world when um, matter gets arranged in a sufficient, sufficiently complex way. So those are really like the two main kinds of dualism, full-blown substance dualism, um, and then a more uh, modest kind of property dualism. And then I guess we can just continue down like a spectrum of views here, getting closer and closer to full-blown physicalism. You start being called a physicalist when you say that the mind just is the brain or the body. So with regard to substances, there's just one thing here. But then also a physicalist will say that your mental properties, your beliefs, your desires, your feelings, these just are physical properties. So um, like your your sensation of pain, that feeling of pain that you experience when you pinch your arm, that just is a brain state or something like that. Um, something that is characterizable in totally physical terms. It's just that we're describing it in different sorts of terms. We're sort of seeing it from a different angle, as it were, um, in the way that you know Clark Kent is typically thought of in one way as being kind of um, meek and um, not very impressive, and he's just a reporter, whereas Superman is viewed in another way. He's very strong and courageous and um, heroic. But really, this is the same guy, just described in different ways and viewed from different angles, as it were. That's roughly what physicalism says about um, our mental states and our physical states. They really just are the same thing described in different terms. Yeah, so picking up on that theme, you have a paper called Undefeated Dualism. Mm -hmm. And you argue that, the, uh, in the in the paper, you argue that the brain and the mind seem to be distinct. So, for example, like I can imagine existing without a body. Right. It seems like I could be like in a room floating and there's a no there's a body nowhere near. And these sorts of possibilities have been used by philosophers to support dualism. So how does that story yes. go? Well, um, I would I would just be careful to say um, I don't think the issue is one of imagination. If by imagination we mean the formation of mental images, um, even Descartes was really careful to say that when we consider um, certain kinds of thought experiments that are meant to support dualism. Well, the key, well, um, it's not crucial that we're using mental images. We have an ability to um, reliably make judgments about what's possible and what's impossible um, that doesn't rely on the formation of mental images. And Descartes actually used the example of a chalayagon, which is a thousand-sided closed rectilinear figure so, you know, you start with like a pentagon and then a hexagon and so on. And then I guess eventually when you get to a thousand sides, it's a chalayagon. And he pointed out that like this is something that we can know is possible, even if it exceeds our capacity to form mental images about chalayagons. Because like, I don't know about you, but I don't have the power to like form a mental image of a chalayagon. I, I just get this kind of indistinct, hazy image of a polygon with a lot of sides, 
but it's definitely not a thousand sites. So anyway, I would just say that it's really not mental images that are doing the work here. It's some other capacity we have for uh, making judgments about what's possible and impossible. And what's interesting is um, we can consider certain kinds of cases that seem possible to us, but if they really are possible, then dualism has to be true. And so you sketch one case, um, a case of like disembodied existence. So it might strike some of your listeners as pretty clearly possible that maybe all of this is an illusion and we're all the victims of like an evil demon or something like that. And we don't have bodies at all. We're really just disembodied minds. But I think clearer. So if that were true, then, of course, dualism would have to be true because we would just be minds without bodies. So if it's even possible for us to exist without our body, that means we aren't identical with our bodies. Because if we just were the same thing as our bodies, then there's no way that you could have one without the other because there's only one thing here. There's no one and there's no other. There's just one. So um, that's why these scenarios, although they're merely possible, that's why they're relevant to the question of what I am. Um, but I think clearer cases involve, for example, um, just life after death, where by death I mean the destruction of your body. So I think that most people acknowledge when they think about it that continued existence after the destruction of your body is at least possible. We're not saying that it will happen. We're not saying that it's likely to happen. We're just saying it's in the same category as like unicorns, the fountain of youth, invisibility, and so on. These are things that could happen, even though like for all we know, they never have happened. Um, and I think like some evidence for this is the fact that like the majority of humans living today think that not only could this happen, but in fact it will. And it looks like the a good number of humans throughout history have thought that life after death is not just possible, but actual. I mean, if you just witness something that's distinctive about the human species is we tend to have elaborate burial rituals and we sort of bury our loved ones with tools and instruments that we think will be useful in the next life. And if we didn't think that life after death was possible, like we wouldn't do this, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't um, look forward to life after death and we wouldn't plan for it. So um, I think it's pretty clear that humans do judge this sort of situation as possible. But again, if that is possible, if things are as they seem to be, then dualism has to be true. Because how could you survive the death of your brain and your body if you just are your brain or your body? And then I'll just run a couple of other scenarios by your listeners. Um, so just consider reincarnation, for example. So again, here we have a belief that a lot of humans think is not just possible, but actual. And I think the rest of humans, if you're like me, you got to grant that I'll, I don't think reincarnation will happen, but I think that it could. It's in the same category, again, as like unicorns and the fountain of youth. But if reincarnation is possible, then that means that I could get a new body. So I could be around even though this current body of mine is not around. And that requires that I am not one and, one and the same as this current body. So again, if reincarnation is even possible, then um, dualism has to be true. So some people, when they hear arguments like this, they are taken aback by the claim that like a mere possibility could prove that dualism is actually true. How could like the possibility of a certain scenario show that a certain philosophical view is actually true? Well, again, it has to do with the nature of identity. If a, something A is literally identical with something B. If A and B are just the same thing, if there's just one thing going by two names, um, A and B, then it's not even possible to have A without B. You are A and your body is B. Um, and physicalism says you just are your body. So if physicalism is true, it's not even possible for you to exist without your body. But then premise two says, as, oh, it's sure possible, you know, um, there's life, life after death is possible, reincarnation is possible, uh, disembodied minds, like, you know, ghosts are at least possible. Um, and so then we get the conclusion that physicalism is false and some kind of dualism is true. So that's how the argument is supposed to go. That's how these considerations of possibility lend support to dualism. 
but what I do in this paper, I'll just kind of briefly sketch it, is um, what I point out is that um, a whole bunch of philosophers, even physicalists, even ardent physicalist philosophers, concede and admit and agree that dualism seems true. <laughs> These sorts of scenarios I just mentioned seem possible. They go on to argue that um, things not things are not as they seem. So although these scenarios seem possible, these people, these physicalists hold, they're not really possible. But they grant what I use as a premise in my argument, they grant that it seems possible. And so um, what I did in this paper is I sort of noticed that in philosophy, it's way easier to poke holes in arguments and to um, raise objections that is to like build a positive argument and defend an argument and build a watertight argument. As soon as the burden of proof is settled, in fact, the debate is pretty much done. <laughs> because whoever bears the burden of proof in philosophy is going to have a really hard time. Because um, like philosophers are just so highly trained at poking holes in arguments. So if it's your job to build a positive argument and you're surrounded like a by a pack of ravenous wolves that are philosophers. So I thought like what seems really interesting about this dualism debate is everybody kind of agrees that dualism is the default view. It is the common sense view. Um, the burden of proof is on the physicalist. We all sort of agree about that. Like dualism seems true. So if it's not true, we need to have reason to think that it's not true. So on the one hand, we all kind of agree that the burden of proof is on physical, and we all sort of know that it's very difficult in philosophy to bear a burden of proof. And yet at the same time, like most philosophers are physicalists. So that struck me as very interesting. Like, what are these awesome arguments for physicalism that have convinced all these philosophers to be physicalists? And so I decided to just write a paper and sort of catalog them and evaluate them. And, um, you know, it's no surprise that once you actually carefully look at these arguments, it turns out that they are susceptible to really powerful objections and they're not really as good as um, a lot of people take them to be. And so the basic argument of the paper is dualism seems true. Burden of proof is on physicalism. Um, so if we're going to be physicalists, we've got to have really good arguments for physicalism or really good reasons to doubt these dualist intuitions that we're all having. Step two, none of the arguments for physicalism, none of the reasons to doubt these dualist intuitions are any good. So conclusion, um, we should believe that things are as they seem to be. We should accept the default view, the common sense view, um, which is dualism. Yeah, so it seems like in reading your paper, I got the impression that your argument relies a lot on seemings, how things seem. So, like for example, it seems like I'm talking to you and uh, so presumably I'm at least somewhat justified believing that I am. Um, but I sort of had a, I had a question in the back of my mind when I was reading this paper, which is like, isn't the work here being done by reliability? So like, if I trust the way things seem uh, in respect to talking to you or remembering having um, coffee and oatmeal for breakfast, it seems like that's what I had for breakfast. Um, it seems like um, two plus two equals four. Are these seemings, don't they confer justification or don't they justify what we believe because they're reliable? Like, I can have lots of crazy seemings, right? Like, I could, you know, pop a pill and, like, have an hallucination and it seems like I'm talking to a unicorn, right? So, for listeners who've had pot brownies, this is, like, probably an actual thing for some of you. Um, or, you know, the classic example of, like, a white ball under a red light. Well, I think it's right that... Um... If something seems true to you, um, but then you get some evidence that whatever the source of this seeming is, if you get evidence that that source is unreliable, then, yeah, it would not be reasonable for you to just go on believing that things are as they seem to be. So all I really claim in the paper is that seemings deliver a kind of um, initial justification that could be defeated um, if you get some powerful reasons to think that this source is unreliable. And so, I mean, that happens in the case of a white ball and a red light. It seems red to you. And so, you know, if you're just um, cruising along, going through life, you'll probably believe that it is red. But if somebody got, comes along and says, actually, the lighting in this room is really misleading and it's red lighting. And so things will appear red even when they're not red. 
then it would be unreasonable for you to persist in believing that things are as they seem. Or like, you know, if you're just listening to the news on the radio and you hear a news report that claims that something's true, um, it claims that a certain event happens, it might be reasonable for you to um, take that at face value and believe that things are as they're reported to be. But if you go on to get evidence that this news source is really unreliable, like you find out that it's it's Infowars or something, and this is this is an Alex Jones outfit, then it's no longer reasonable for you to believe that things are as they seem to be. You you have a defeater for that seeming. And so yeah, I'm I'm sensitive to that. Um, so step one of this argument for dualism is just we all agree, physicalists and dualists alike, that um, dualism seems true. When we reflect on these um, scenarios about like life after death and reincarnation and disembodied minds, these things all seem possible. So all I conclude from that is we should believe that things are as they seem unless we have a defeater. Like maybe there is a defeater out there. Maybe we've got some reason to, to think that um, the source of these intuitions is actually unreliable. And in fact, that's what a lot of physicalists think that we have. A lot of physicalists are physicalists because they think, oh man, I got a really good defeater for my dualist intuitions. But what I try to show in the paper is um, none of the proposals that people offer as defeaters for these dualist intuitions actually work. And usually that's because either the proposal is not itself sufficient to, to even be a defeater, um, or if it were sufficient, it would require too much skepticism. And so let me give you like an example of that. Um, so um, there's actually in the literature, there are examples of people pointing out that it might be that um, when we have these dualist intuitions, we're actually just making a really simple kind of um, uh, error in modal logic. We're just making a simple logical error. So we're making a move from something like, well, it, it doesn't seem impossible for me to survive the death of my body. That does not seem impossible. And then we conclude from that that, oh, it seems possible. So from the fact that it doesn't seem impossible, we hastily and fallaciously conclude possible. Um, and of course that is a mistake. Things can fail to seem impossible to you without actually being possible. So if you just consider, for example, like some unproven theorems in mathematics. So I think one example is, some people think that the mistake you're making is you see that um, something's possible, like a certain proposition is possible, uh, like it's possible for your mind to exist. You also see that um, another proposition is possible. It's possible for your body not to exist. It's possible for your mind to exist. You also realize it's possible for your body not to, not to exist. And then, fool that you are, you conclude from this that it's possible at the same time for your mind to exist and your body not to exist. So that is a really simple sort of mistake in logical reasoning. And so some people have suggested maybe that's what's going wrong when we do these little dualist thought experiments. We're just making this kind of very basic logical mistake. So what, what I point out in the paper is pointing out that I might be making a, a simple logical mistake is not enough to like defeat a seeming. It would be like um, if I was in a room looking at a ball that appeared to be red and you said, you know, the lighting might be misleading in this room. We have no reason to think it actually is, but it might be. That's not enough to make me think, oh, OK, I got to give up my belief that this ball is red. I actually need reason to think that the lighting is messed up in this room in order to give up my belief that the ball is red, in order to doubt that things are as they seem. It's not enough to just point out a mere possibility of error. Um, and then here's um, the other sort of problem that I pointed out. Um, if this were enough to defeat seemings, then it would lead to too much skepticism because it's just way too easy to um, undermine beliefs in this way, if this is enough to undermine a belief. Because pick any belief that you have, pick anything that strikes you as obvious. Like it's pretty obvious that two plus two is four. I could come along as kind of a niggling skeptic and say, well, you know, it could be that unbeknownst to you, subconsciously, 
you believe that two plus two is four is a result of a really basic logical mistake. You know, really what's going on at a subconscious level is you fail to see the falsity of this proposition and mistake that for seeing its truth. Um, yeah, I think that that has just as much force in the case of two plus two equaling four that it has in the case of the dualist intuitions. So if pointing out a mere possibility of error is enough to defeat our dualist intuitions, it's going to defeat way too many of our um, mathematical intuitions, log logical intuitions, and philosophical intuitions generally. So just one final thing, and then I'll stop talking. The problem with these dualist intuitions is sort of similar, to use an um, analogy from biology, it's sort of similar to the problem with um, trying to find a cure for cancer. What makes cancer so tricky is cancer cells are our cells. Um, cancer cells are not foreign cells. They're not some like foreign invader in our body. Cancer cells are our cells that have gone haywire. And so that makes it really tricky to design a treatment um, that targets just cancer cells because treatments for cancer are apt to affect not just the cancer cells, but neighboring healthy cells. Um, I mean, that's kind of what happens with chemotherapy and radiation treatment. It doesn't just kill the cancer, it also kills healthy cells. And that's why it's such a, a devastating sort of course of treatment. So um, dualist intuitions are kind of, <laughs> I think dualism is true. So it's a, little, it's a little uncomfortable to describe dualist intuitions as cancer, but I think a physicalist would gladly agree. Um, dualist intuitions are kind of like cancer. Um, it's hard to come up with a targeted debunking of dualist intuitions that doesn't overgeneralize and affect other sorts of intuitions too, neighboring healthy sort of philosophical intuitions. It's hard to have a targeted defeater for dualist intuitions that isn't also going to call for wholesale skepticism of all of our other um, judgments about what's possible and necessary about what's true and false. So that's basically what I do in the paper. You've convinced me, Tom. Uh, I'm a dualist. I think that's amazing. Like, who cares? So um, by naturalism, I mean a long philosophical tradition going back at least to Democritus, according to which um, only natural things exist, where it's kind of hard to say what natural things are, but it's like physical stuff. You know, they're happy with matter and energy and space. They're cool with that. Um, some of them have made peace with numbers and abstract objects, but really it's a very kind of austere desert landscape, as it's been described, where it's just like atoms in the void, as Democritus said. That's naturalism. Supernaturalism says, yeah, all that physical stuff exists, but um, also there are non-physical things like souls and God and maybe angels and so on. Um, there's life after death. Um, so um, these are two quite different views of the world. They both have a very rich philosophical history. And again, I don't think it's like an overstatement to say that um, there's been a longstanding war between these two worldviews for um, cultural supremacy. And this debate in the philosophy of mind is just uh, one battle in that larger war. And so although I don't think there are entailment relations between physicalism and atheism or between dualism and theism, I'm pretty sure everybody grants that physicalism and atheism kind of fit nicely together and dualism and theism kind of fit nicely together. And I mean, there was a recent survey of professional philosophers that I think bears this out. There are really strong correlations between those views. Physicalists tend to be atheists. Um, dualists tend to be theists. Um, and so there are implications of this debate for some of our most deeply held beliefs about the nature of reality. And so that's why I think philosophers take it so seriously. So you've, um, this takes us nicely into your um, other main topic, which is uh, the rationality of religious belief. Uh, this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, in fact, I originally got into philosophy by way of thinking about God. Uh, I remember I was in a ceramics class um, thinking about uh, sort of falsifiability. I didn't realize that's what I was thinking about at the time. And the thought just sort of struck me like, I bet the world would look the same regardless of whether or not God existed. 
Like, would we really know the difference? Like, is there some, like, big neon sign in space? It's like, God doesn't exist, right? Or God exists, right? And you can just look at the sign, and it'll tell you whether or not you live in a God universe or not. Um, so you mentioned being a Christian. I'm wondering, like, okay, so you're a Christian. And suppose Christianity is true, right? If you've been born in India, and you'd read... Uh, um, the Bhagavad Gita or some some other holy book in the Hindu tradition, if you'd listen to your parents, um, that would have presumably led you to a false religion, Hinduism, right? Because we're stipulating for the sake of argument that Christianity is true. But for a lot of folks, I think, that are, that are Christian, um, that's how they became Christians. They grew up in a Christian household. They were born in a Christian country. They read the Bible. They went to church. Doesn't this sort of show that the methods of sort of our methodology or um, the ways in which people acquire religion is sort of dubious or should make us skeptical of our religious beliefs, whatever those are? Well, yeah, I think this is a very interesting question. And in fact, um, this is one of the very first philosophical questions that I ever encountered. Um, and that was pretty formative in my movement towards philosophy. Um, I was actually in a cognitive science class reading Paul Churchland's Matter and Consciousness. And um, I mean, so I was already into philosophy of mind, but he briefly gives this sort of argument against religious belief when he's discussing dualism. He says, you know, most people are dualists for religious reasons, but you shouldn't trust your religious beliefs. And here's why, you know, if you'd been born in India, you would have been a Hindu. If you'd been born in Pakistan, you would have been a Muslim and so on. So religious belief seems to be largely a, an accident of birth. And so you can't really claim to have religious knowledge. And it really struck, stuck out to me, like I have a very vivid memory of what room I was in, what lecture hall I was in, and the location on the, on the page of this argument. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> whatever this is, this is the sort of thing I want to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I sort of puzzled over that question for many years, and then eventually I, I wrote a paper about it. And so what I said was, um, no, I don't think that this sort of consideration about how I might have been born elsewhere and elsewhen and had different religious beliefs. I don't think that that all by itself is a reason to doubt my religious beliefs. And a quick way to see that is to realize that many of our beliefs would have been different if we'd been born elsewhere and elsewhen. And at least sometimes it's obvious that that's not enough to show that we don't know that those beliefs are true. So to just borrow a quick example from philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he points out that, um, I'll just use my own case, I believe that I was born in Long Beach, California. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I know that. I, I know that I was born in Long Beach, California. But if I had been born in India, I'd be one of those people who believes he was born in India. I would have totally different beliefs about where I was born. So is that counterfactual enough to show that I don't really know where I was born? Now, obviously not. I think it's pretty clear that that is not enough to debunk my belief that I was born in Long Beach, California. Also, I think there's here's another way to see the problem. There's a worry about self-defeat here. Um, the person who uses this skeptical argument obviously thinks that the argument is sound. And the argument that I mean is... Um, well, you know, if you had been born elsewhere and elsewhere and you would have had totally different religious beliefs, um, if so, then you should doubt your religious beliefs. Therefore, you should doubt your religious beliefs. The person who uses that argument thinks that it is sound. But notice that if this person had been born elsewhere and elsewhere, there's a really good chance she wouldn't have thought that this argument was sound. Maybe she would have never even considered this argument, or maybe she would have considered it and concluded that it wasn't sound. There's a a whole lot of disagreement over after all. Um, so there's no guarantee that if you had been born elsewhere and elsewhere, you would have still thought that this argument is sound. But then this very argument seems to show, if it's sound, that you should doubt that it's sound. You can't really know that it's sound. You shouldn't even believe that it's sound. So that's a kind of self-defeat. If this argument is sound, then it says of itself, don't believe me. Because, you know, had you been born elsewhere and elsewhere, um, you easily might have not believed me. You easily might have had different beliefs about my soundness. And so the argument says of itself, don't believe me. 
Um, so that's a problem. That's a kind of self-defeat. Now, maybe some of your listeners think that's a little too tricky and a little too cute. <laughs> that's the sort of trick that you learn in graduate school, you know. Um, so here's a way to make it a little more concrete. Um, notice that uh, even atheists, even religious skeptics, have beliefs about what reality is like, and they have beliefs about religious questions. They have beliefs about whether there's a God, whether there's life after death, etc. And for atheists, just as for religious believers, it's true that if they had been born in India, they would have been Hindus. And if they had been born in Pakistan, they would have been Muslim. If they had been born in Mexico, they probably would have been Catholic and so on. So if this sort of elsewhere, else when argument is sound, then even for the atheist, even for the religious skeptic, it looks like um, the argument requires that they give up their beliefs on religious topics. So that's another way to see that um, this argument proves a little too much. Nobody is safe from this argument. Um, it would call for everybody to be skeptical. It, would, it looks like it would call for us to be skeptical even about where we were born. It would call for us to be skeptical about even the belief that it's sound. And it would definitely call for every, everybody to be skeptical about their own religious beliefs. Uh, and that's sort of a threat of skeptical arguments. Skeptical arguments tend to have problems with self-defeat. They tend to turn on the hands that wields them, so to speak. They tend to bite their own master, as it were. Um, so whenever somebody gives you a kind of skeptical argument, you should always ask, like, is this person being skeptical enough? Um, or does this argument call for even more skepticism than this person is demonstrating. So I think what all that these considerations show is that if we know that our beliefs on religious questions are true, we're lucky to know that they're true. So I agree that there does seem to be a connection between luck and knowledge. There is a certain kind of luck that's incompatible with knowledge. If you really know that something's true, it can't be an accident or a coincidence that you're right. You can't be right by luck. So I think that explains the attraction of this elsewhere, elsewhere argument. We see some kind of luck associated with our beliefs on religious matters. Um, and we're tempted to think, aha, this is the bad kind of luck. This is the kind of luck that's incompatible with knowledge. But um, the fly in the ointment is that some kinds of luck are actually compatible with knowledge. Like when, for example, a detective stumbles upon the murder weapon by luck. <clears throat> but nevertheless can thereby know who committed the crime. It's possible to be lucky to know things. And so the difficult question is whether the contingency of my place of birth, my place and time of birth, is the bad kind of luck that's incompatible with knowledge, or is the benign kind of luck that is compatible with knowledge? That's a tricky philosophical question. It may be that, yes, I easily might have been born in a time and place that would have prevented me from knowing the truth on these religious matters. Maybe I am very lucky to have been born to parents who knew the truth and passed it on to me. But it could be that in that case, I'm just lucky to know the truth on these matters. Like how that detective is lucky to know who committed the crime after luckily stumbling upon the murder weapon. So I think the issue is a little more complicated than most people let on. It's... It's really difficult to figure out whether this sort of luck is the bad kind of luck or the benign kind of luck. And I'm inclined to think it's probably the benign kind of luck. Uh, so there is a related problem with um, religious belief. So there's a recent article that came out by um, Jason and John Marsh. I don't know if they're related, but they talk about the explanatory problem of religious diversity. So, in a nutshell, what they argue in their paper is that uh, cognitive science of religion seems to indicate that you and I have what you might call an overly uh, sensitive agency detection mechanism. So that is a long-winded way of saying that you and I tend to have, we tend to be neurologically wired to see agency where there isn't any. So we might see agency in weather and patterns and assign that to like a curse or an angry god. Um, we see this with children and the way they interact with their stuffed animals. Like you might think your stuffed animal has a personality, like Molly thinks her doll is a very sweet uh, individual. And that when you couple this with 
uh, different cultures and different situations, you get this sort of plurality of gods and religious traditions that sort of naturally arise. And the Marshes argue uh, that this is a much more difficult problem on theism. So for one thing, it looks like if God created the world and played a role in our evolution or development, that in a sort of secondary sense, um, or primary sense, I mean, um, he's responsible for uh, that overly sensitive agency detection mechanism. Um, and that you can't really appeal as easily to things like free will or moral shortcomings to explain um, diversity. So I can't say like, well, if you weren't, you know, a sinful wretch, you would be a Christian, but since you are, you're Hindu, right? That this sort of thing is not available. It also just seems like we don't really need theism to explain this diversity. We can sort of, we have a, a neurological evolutionary story we can tell that accounts for religious diversity. Uh, I know this is, it's a related problem. It's not necessarily something that you've written on, but I was curious what you thought, like, does, do the existence of other religions um, and the diversity of religious belief um, on this view, doesn't that seem to be uh, a reason to favor like a naturalism or atheism over say theism? Well, um, I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure that, God did give us this hyperactive agency detector. I mean, I think that we have it. <laughs> I'm just not sure that um, it's right to say that God gave us it rather than just he permitted us to evolve in such a way as to end up with it. Um, but, you know, since foresight is different from intention, um, he can't really, it might be that he can't really be said to have intended that we end up with this hyperactive agency detector. But, I mean, you still might wonder why he permitted us to end up with it. Um, well, I suppose, I mean, the answer is, from a theistic perspective, for the normal evolutionary reasons, you know, it's adaptive to have a hyperactive agency detector. It's better, safer, more useful to have a hyperactive agency detector than not, since it's better to have false positives than false negatives with regard to agents. It's better to think there are agents around, even when there aren't, than to think that there are not agents around when there are, because agents often mean to do us harm. So I guess Athea should just say that with regard to the question of why do we have this hyperactive agency detector if God exists? Um, I guess for the same reasons that the evolutionary psychologists will tell us we have it, uh, because it's adaptive. Now true, like it might be that the hyperactive agency detector has some negative consequences as well with regard to knowledge of God. Um, and so I suspect this question is really an instance of the problem of divine hiddenness. Um, and so I think it's just an instance of a more general problem. Like if God wants us to know and to love him, why does he make it so difficult? <laughs> you know, Why permit all these mixed messages regarding other religions? Um, why not make it super clear um, what the truth is on religious questions? Um, well, since this interview is already getting a little, uh, a bit overlong, I'll just answer briefly. Um, I'll say that I suspect it's mistaken to think that God's main purpose in creating humans was for us to end up in the right sort of cognitive state, to have a set of true beliefs about God. Um, so, I mean, the book of James and the Bible tells us that it's no great feat to know that God exists. Um, James says even the demons do that and they shudder. Um, rather, it looks like my understanding of historical Christianity is that the whole point of this adventure through this veil of tears seems to be spiritual formation, um, turning us into saints. The purpose seems to be um, to make us holy, not to make us happy in the blissful sense, although those two will eventually go together in the end. Um, but right now, the purpose of this earthly existence is um, saint development, the formation of saints. Um, so you find that sort of thought throughout the church fathers from St. Irenaeus through St. Athanasius to St. Thomas. They all said something like this. The Christian story is that God became man so that man can become God. And they don't mean literally like the triune God. They mean become little g gods, become divine, um, become perfected, become fully holy. Um, become saints. 
And so while it, I think on the Christian view, it might be useful to have true beliefs about God in this process of what's called theosis, becoming like God, I don't think it's at all required. And I think that this obsession that many people have with the idea that salvation is getting um, all the right beliefs is actually a hangover from Gnosticism, um, a sort of competitor with early Christianity, um, but uh, certainly at best a heresy and not a legitimate Christianity. But unfortunately, this kind of Gnostic thought has become quite prevalent in especially American Christianity and especially, sad to say, American Protestantism. But I think it's quite alien to historical Christianity. Um, so all that to say, I don't think that God is hidden in the way that really matters, in the way that gets us into the right relationship with him. Um, as Morpheus said to Neo in The Matrix, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking it. And it's possible to walk the path without knowing the path. So I think humans are all very well positioned to walk this path of sanctification and become better people and become holy and develop their characters. Though um, you got to admit that it is a special grace of the church that we might also come to know what this path is as well. Yeah. So you, um, in your last part of your answer there, you sort of inadvertently answered my last question. So I was, I was reading your, your uh, paper, the problem of contingency of religious belief and sort of thinking the thought that I usually think, which is that I am very puzzled, at least in Christianity, and maybe this is true in other religions too, I don't know, very puzzled with this emphasis on belief. So take Sam, right? Like Sam's an agnostic. If you put a gun to Sam's head and asked him if he believed in God or he thought God likely existed, he'd say, yeah, as likely as not, based on the evidence. Uh, but Sam hopes that, say, Christianity is true. Uh, he lives a saintly life, or at least tries to. Um, he deeply values um, virtues, um, treating others well. Um, I'm not so sure what, like, why would Sam care about religious belief or religious knowledge? I'm not so sure that Sam couldn't sort of get everything out of sort of living a saintly or religious life and getting the meaning and um, sort of that deep meaning from that way of life that um, just by living a certain way rather than having a particular set of beliefs or knowledge. And so I see, yeah. I, I've been recently returning to this theme. It just seems like there's lots of room for um, religious, religious observance that doesn't involve belief and knowledge. I think this is a very interesting and difficult issue. Um, so it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in the Bible in Matthew 25, where Jesus describes Judgment Day. And it's one of the few occasions where Jesus actually speaks to the issue of like what's required on your view for entrance into heaven. Um, so I think that all of us should pay careful attention to what that passage says. Um, and I love this passage because it's so completely contrary to my upbringing as a Lutheran. Um, I'm now Catholic, but I was raised Lutheran. And I, it really ought to have caused me great concern growing up as a Protestant, especially in, um, in America these days. But this verse is just laying there in plain sight. It's just there in Matthew 25. And what's interesting is in that passage, Jesus says that on the last day, he'll separate the saved from the damned, the sheep from the goats. And he gives an explanation of the, the um, process, like what were the criteria by which he separated the sheep from the goats? He says um, to the sheep, come take your inheritance for... When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me, etc. And so notice the use of the word for. Like that, that's very intentional, and it's important to get the accurate translation. Jesus is giving us the grounds or the basis for his judgment. He's saying this is why you are um, among the saved. This is why you are in this group over here among the sheep. Um, he really does seem to be describing the grounds or the basis on which people will gain entrance into heaven. And that ground or that basis is all about following his commandments, actually doing certain things 
and not at all about having the right sort of beliefs. So I think what might have happened in the history of um, religious thought is um, the Gnostics um, had a view of the afterlife on which we would literally be given a series of tests upon death. Um, and only those with secret arcane knowledge would be able to pass these tests. That's why they were called the Gnostics, because they thought we have the secret knowledge and we will teach you the passwords <laughs> into um, the afterlife. So only those who knew the right answers, who had these secret passwords, would make it into the next life. But um, in Matthew 25, that's certainly not what's happening, according to Jesus. And in that story in Matthew 25, um, the sheep even say, like, what are you talking about? When did we do all that? When did we see you hungry and give you food? And when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? We had no idea we were doing that. And Jesus says famously, you know, whenever you did this to the least of these, um, to anybody who was suffering, um, I credit you as having done it to me. Um, so again, it looks like entrance into heaven is not determined by having the right sort of beliefs or having the right sort of knowledge. You don't really, it looks like you're not going to be quizzed on the Nicene Creed or something. Um, we're not getting tested on the creeds when we die. Um, rather, what seems to be most important is what you've done. And uh, it, this is off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's Revelation 20, which is, to my knowledge, the only other occasion in the New Testament where we're told about the criteria for entrance into heaven. And there it says that um, people will be judged on the basis of what, what they've done. And only those whose names are written in the book of life will get into heaven. And whether or not your name is written in that book is, again, determined by what you have done. There's been this strand of Christianity that seems to have reverted to a kind of Gnosticism where all that's really important is that you get into the right headspace and you have the right sort of beliefs. And, of course, good works should follow from that, but by no means will you be held accountable for what you did. But on my reading, that's just straight up contrary to what we see in the New Testament. But at the same time, I want to really quickly add, I hasten to add that I think that true religious knowledge can certainly help one to accomplish what seems to be our main goal as humans. It's certainly helpful to know who God is and what his purposes are and how much he loves us. That's all very helpful um, in our quest to become perfect as God is perfect. So I, I totally admit that spiritual manuals and spiritual instruction and religious knowledge can be of great use in this regard. And it's to our tremendous advantage to have access to that information. And so that, I think, is one of the primary tasks of the church, to share this good news and to disseminate that very useful information. So although I don't think that um, religious knowledge or religious belief is required for um, accomplishing the purpose of human existence, I think that it is very helpful and we should be grateful when we have it and we should do our best to share that good news with other people. And, and even for those who, um, who are atheists or secular, uh, there is some evidence for this in terms of uh, human psychology. Um, it seems like, I mean, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath or something like that, I think most people get something out of being kind to others. Uh, or doing something good, helping someone out. Um, there's something very deeply rewarding about doing good things. This isn't always true, but it can be at least. And on that note, I really appreciate you uh, stopping by the program. This is a this is a great episode. Um, you did a good deed for the day, and um, this is very informative and interesting. It was great talking with you. Too.